Coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we've welcomed five guests. Dr. Anjmarie hancock Alfaro, a woman of faith who is also a scholar specializing in critical race theory and intersectionality. Marlena Graves, scholar and activist. Dr. Drew Hart, who is a scholar focused on the intersection between race, faith, and justice. Dr. Dennis Edwards, pastor and New Testament scholar. And Dr. Chris Williamson, pastor of a multiracial church in Nashville, Tennessee, and author. I ask my esteemed guests to join us on Freedom Road today because not long ago, Six Southern Baptist seminary presidents condemned critical race theory outright, banning it from being taught within the halls of their institutions and added, just for good measure, intersectionality as well. And by golly, it is time to set the record straight. So today we're going to have that conversation and we would love to hear your thoughts. So make sure you tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast. Make sure you share this one with everybody and your grandmother and great grandmother too, because this is for real. There's been kind of a whisper campaign about critical race theory within the evangelical world, especially and the fundamentalist world for decades. This is nothing new, folks. Look, we got scholars on the deck. They are going to tell us what is what. And they're going to tell us especially how we need to be thinking about this inside the church. So share it with your friends, share it with your great grandma, and let us know what you think. Okay, everybody. So I'm going to throw out the first question. And the first question, of course, is the personal one. We always start with the personal. We start with our own stories. So I want to know, what was your very first encounter with the term critical race theory? I'll jump in. So this is Drew Hart speaking. Yeah, when I was thinking about the first time that I heard the term, I believe, it's been a while, so I don't remember exactly when I first said the term, but I think it was while I was an MDiv student. So that would have been between 2008-2011. In seminary, I was at MSCO Seminary, a part of an urban cohort, so it's mostly Black students. So it wasn't necessarily that it was impossible to have heard it there, but I think it was during that time because I was also simon- simultaneously jumping into Twitter when I was an MDiv student at that time as well. Okay. <laughs> and so I think the first time, it was on Twitter in conversation with other folks who were on the ministry academic path that I heard the term critical race theory. But then I quickly, so I started reading, you know, Edward Benia Silva and Omi Wanans and some other folks like that and realized in some ways I had already been engaged in critical race theory because I had read the first two folks was Michael Eric Dyson and Cornel West, Race Rules, Race Matters. Though I hadn't, I didn't hear the term. I hadn't known that term before. So there had been some resources I had engaged that would be technically critical race theory that I just hadn't connected the dot 
rights with that official term. So I've been familiar with the term for at least 10 years. And so it's been interesting to see this conversation develop because it seems to have come out of nowhere in terms of just the responses that people have had. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. And I think for me, I the first time I ever heard it was in the context of, of an evangelical setting and they were coming against doing racial conversations and used critical race. This was like literally a couple decades ago. First time, I think maybe in the early 2000s and maybe once, maybe. No, I don't even think in the 90s, I never really heard the term. So it had to be in the early 2000s was my first time and always by evangelicals trying to use it to come against. But ironically, in none of the teaching I ever had on race were those three words actually usually used. Dr. Anjemarie, I see you nodding. What are you thinking here? Well, I, I um, also learned it in school. I'm just older than Dr. Drew. <laughs> so I did hear it in the 90s. And I actually was, I was a PhD student in North Carolina. So I had moved to the Bible Belt from New York City where I had been living. And so I was really at once rediscovering my faith and Black communities and at the same time learning this in school. And I heard Kimberly Williams Crenshaw talk and she broke down critical race theory and intersectionality to me at the same time as I was getting involved in the gospel choir and in other aspects. And so I never saw any kind of disconnect between these two things because they were just so much at the same time a part of my experience. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. How about you, Marlena? Yeah, I was trying to think about when I first heard the word and I can't remember. I remember when I reading about it, I'm like, I know we'll get into this later. I'm like, okay, so what's the problem here? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Literally mm. baffled. Okay, so mm-hmm. Dennis? Yeah, for me, that's fine. We know each other for a while, so Dennis <laughs> is just fine. Okay. But you know, I also, I was schooled in biblical studies. I did my doctoral studies and such. So it was during my pastoral years, I remember people talking about race and connecting it with power and evangelicals had always been talking about just personal prejudice. So that was this introduction, but then it wasn't until, oh man, years later, I actually heard the terminology of critical race theory. I didn't know the terms, but I had been exposed to issues of power and intersectionality, even though those terms didn't come clearly to me until Mm -hmm. I would say withdrew within the last 10 years or so, was I exposed to those as terms and areas of study actually. That's helpful. And then Dr. Williamson, how about you? Obviously, I'm the new kid on the block because I didn't hear about it until this summer. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I was minding my own business. I pastor a multiracial church in the South. I've been uh-huh. doing this now for 25 years. Uh-huh. And I was just minding my own business, doing biblical exegesis, social <laughs> exegesis, <laughs> as I always do, calling out individual sin and institutional sin mm-hmm. and racism. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, one of my uh, white families that leans heavily towards conservatism began to point out various things that I was saying that they didn't agree with. I also put a picture of my library up on uh, social media one day, and I guess they saw some of the authors that have influenced my thinking. And from there, I just became uh, unacceptable and a liberal and a Marxist and every other thing that comes along with it. So I had to go do some research to find out what it was being called. (laughs) (laughs) and honestly that is literally i totally feel you there that's exactly how i felt too so this whole thing first of all i want to ask dr Marie if since you are the scholar who focuses on crt and intersectionality what does it mean what is it and what are the origins 
Sure. Well, I, I, a scholar, that is true. <laughs> but, but so intersectionality and critical race theory actually have intertwining histories. Intersectionality actually dates back to 1831. So most people think it started in 1989, but it starts with a woman named Mariah Stewart, who was a freed Black woman in Hartford, Connecticut, who was mentored by David Walker. And uh, David Walker was a profound Christian. She was a profound Christian. And they both wrote what are called Jeremiads, right? A way of preaching and talking about slavery and ending oppression for Black women. That was Mariah Stewart, right? My goodness. Um, so fast forward 150 years, you get to the 1970s and people who are doing critical race theory are people who went to law school, who are beneficiaries of the civil rights movement, and they're dissatisfied with their white progressive colleagues who were saying, we need to be on the left and we need to focus on economics. And they're saying, well, what about race? And you need to talk about how there are structures of racism built into our constitution. And so there's this intertwining history. People often think intersectionality came after critical race theory, but it actually started before. Wow. That's what really gets to me when people are criticizing it, because I'm like, you don't even know that this started back with Black Christians. So to say it's anti-Christian is like, what? Oh, my gosh. Literally, I know that I know I kind of feel a little bit over the top, but I'm literally feeling a little bit like mind blown right now. Yeah, actually, me too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I did not know that. I did not know that coming into this call. And I want I would love for you to send a link to anything that we can find about the woman who you just what is her name again? Yes, Mariah Stewart. I'm, I'm happy Mariah to I'll post links in the chat and we can post them on when the podcast yes. goes out. Sure. Thank you. We want to do that because we want to learn. Okay, so Mariah Stewart. And, and let me know, this, this is my understanding that I've come to know since I got the two books that I got on critical race theory a month ago because I wanted to figure out what is all this hoopla about. So I started reading. And in my understanding, tell me this is wrong, that in the 1980s, when Derek Bell started to first think about critical, like name critical race theory, what he did was he made a break from Marxism because CLS, which is critical legal studies, actually was to some degree grounded in Marxist thought. But what he said explicitly was, this ain't Marxist because Marxism is an economic theory and sees things through the lens of class as they would in an all-white European society where the divisions were according to class, the nobles and the serfs and things like that. But in a racialized American context or colonized context, you have to have race as part of the equation. So he made a a break, an explicit break from that Marxist line of thinking and said, no, We need to actually include race in this equation. And it is actually central. Dr. Anjmarie, is that right? Do I have it right? Is there anything more to add? Yes, very much so. And I would only add that in addition to being a great student (laughs) of this already with the two books, that this was a common kind of critique of the left. And W.B. Du Bois in the early part of the 20th century took the socialists and the communists to task and said, you are not handling race. And until you handle race, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get out of this. But it was Bell, as opposed to Du Bois, that actually did the break and said, no, race is actually the central organizing factor in American society, going back all the way to the beginning. Yes, going back all the way to the beginning. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so can I ask, 
you, Drew, Marlena, anybody who has any thoughts on this, why is Marx coming up? Like, what does Marx have to do with anything? I think the first question is kind of broken into two parts. One is, what is Marx's legitimate connection to this whole thing? And then second, why is Marx being used by folks on the right as a bogeyman? What's going on there? I think Marx is exposing the self-interests of those who have power and wealth and resources. And so I think folks that are uncomfortable with the way that's going to expose their own self-interest, they're going to stigmatize a blanket negative framework for thinking about what Marxism is. And so there's no nuance, there's no careful reading and consideration of the different ideas of Marxism. It's just a blanket statement, Marxism is bad. And I think the reality is that most people who are throwing the term out, they have no idea what they're talking about, and they don't expect the people that they're trying to speak to know what it means either, other than that it's a bad word. Um, I think that's really more important, actually, than what Marxism is, is the way that it functions in, in the discourse, that this is going to turn people off, this is going to turn people away. But, but I think, as it was already said, stated, that there, there's continuity and discontinuity with most critical studies with Marxism. There's engagement, pushback. Um, you say same thing with post-colonial theory, right? There's a critical reading of Marxism that both has continuity and discontinuity with it. And I think that careful readings could draw from it, learn from it, even as we might not buy into the whole ideological narrative that's being thrown out. But that's never been the point of throwing it out. In some ways, again, it, we could almost waste so much time on what Marxism is about, which I'm not a Marxist scholar, by the way. Yeah. But it's a waste of time to actually think that's what's at stake because no one's actually engaging in good faith dialogue around the ideas. Well, that's a good, that's yeah, a really that good point. That is helpful. I wanted to jump in just for a second. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As an older guy, <laughs> I'm uh-huh. used to hearing Christians who have who try to find uh, something that they're angry about. And, and Marxism, it's, it's because of this one quote about a religion being the opiate of the masses. So there's this sense that even older Christians that communism, Marxism, they got lumped together when they were afraid of anything that was threatening American kind of ideals. But that notion of religion being uh, the opiate of the masses, I think, is what some people have latched onto in Christian circles. That's really helpful. And Dr. Williamson, how have you seen that label used in your church or among, in, or not even just within your church, but within your stream of the faith? Well, I would say that many times people um, who want to reject ideas will label people. And I think it's uh, really nothing new under the sun. Dr. King was called a communist. And I tell people I'm as much of a Marxist as Dr. King was a communist. And even as history proves that he was not a communist, it's just the the way that that side operates to, to try to use terms to discredit people. So I'd rather use CRT as a cop out so that I don't have to deal with the the realities of institutional racism. And so it's easier, even for the Pharisees, we're going to say that Jesus was a Nazarene to put him down because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So therefore, we don't need to listen to his message. So to me, it's just a, a method to discredit the message and the messenger, and they're still doing it today. And from left wing, liberal, progressive, all those terms to shut down listening to what you have to say. Mm, And Marlena, I see you have something to say. Yeah, thank you so much. Just I've been reading a little bit about this semester in school. And to go along with what everyone has said before me, I've realized that uh, I'll just talk about evangelicals. 
there's fundamentalists, there's evangelical is a plurality, a multiplicity. There's a lot of streams in evangelicalism. But I noticed that in the 1940s with Billy Graham, I like Billy Graham reaching out to people and sharing the gospel, but he also liked to cavort with presidents. And so, yes, did. and so he started mixing anti-communism into the message so much so that at the 1966 World Conference on Evangelism, brothers, I would assume it's brothers, maybe sisters, but people in Africa, there was a World Conference on Evangelism. So African delegates are like, you almost share the gospel of capitalism more than the gospel. So what, um, yeah. And so this Christianity starts to get mixed with politics before then you could see some of it, but really in the last hundred years, starting with Billy Graham and then Phyllis Shafley, although she, and and, and, uh, Kristen Dumas talks about this too, but although she was Roman Catholic, she, you know, started doing this and then Jerry Falwell Sr. And so that's where we start to see the marriage of evangelicalism and Republicanism, almost equating that evangelicals with white Republican is my argument. But uh, what was said before is, yeah, it's like an epitaph. If they can get the label Marxist to stick to you, then they can dismiss you. Because remember, in the 40s and 50s, during the Cold War, it was anti-communism, and they had the red, hunting the reds. And if they could call you a communist, you're out, whether you were or not. And so it's coming out of that stream. And the thing that I want to say about that, I know we're not going to be talking about Marxism and uh, capitalism, but there's no reflection on the damage that the capitalist system has done. There's probably good things about capitalism, good things about Marxism. And probably some good things about communism. I don't know. I don't mean communism, but like sharing and distribution. And maybe that'll get me thrown out now that I said that I haven't examined all the systems. But (laughs) my point is that it's almost like to be a Christian, you have to believe in a certain kind of economic system. And what kind of economic system did they have in the Roman Empire, right? They had feudalism. You can't equate Christianity with a certain economic system. Yes, there may be some that are better than others. And so they're using that Marxist, calling you a Marxist just to dismiss you. And uh, without having read, as uh, Dr. Anjmarie said, and everyone said, I just don't think they've read enough about critical race theory or anything. economic systems. Yeah. <laughs> I think so it's just literally anything. Functioning on fear and rhetoric. They traffic in fear and anger. Yeah. Okay. I, I have a, it's just like one of these things that kind of sticks for me. And it's one of these ironic things. And I would love for us to, to bat this about a little bit. Isn't it ironic? Don't you guys think it's ironic? Oh, but hold on. I'm going to scale back. I'm going to pull back and then I'll get us to that ironic place. So when you think about the people who throw out CRT, as a bogeyman today. Mostly they are based in the South or come from the South or the Midwest. And we know that the Midwest was settled by white Southerners, generally speaking, and white and, and black Southerners who came to the Midwest out of the Great Migration, both the Black Great Migration and the White Great Migration. And it's that group that is most committed to going after CRT and calling it Marxist and all the like. And I was trying to get myself into their shoes. Like, why would they call Dr. King Marxist? Like, what's the logic there? 
that they're using? What's, why is it even a logical, what, what is the connection? Is there any logic to it? And the only thing I can think of is, it's actually pretty simple, that what Dr. King and the civil rights movement were fighting for was equality, equal access to flourishing. And that for them, that was a threat. For them, that was tantamount to Marxism because for them in their experience of capitalism, it was for the ruling class, which was racialized in America. So capitalism then is for the benefit of white people in that logic and Marxism is for the benefit of people of color in that in our racialized American logic. What do you guys think of that? I don't think wow. you can. How can anybody argue yeah. against that? I, I was intrigued this semester with students. Like, it's just interesting when I hear like students like respond so negatively to like welfare, anything that actually benefits poor people. Like sometimes Christians yeah. create the meanest people just the nastiest and there's no logical explanation for the way that so many white people today think about that especially given that most of them were beneficiaries of it all throughout the 20th century their grandparents yeah. and such there other than race who had access who was going to have access and has that shifted in terms of who is going to actually benefit as that shifted then all of a sudden social benefit built up uplift of people education, healthcare, all of a sudden those are bad things. Right. There's no logical reason why these things become bad things except for the racial logics that are operating behind the curtain. Wow. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. Who benefits from this confusion and how do they benefit? I really do think that Some of the people, I'm not going to list all of the presidents. I don't know their hearts. Now I'm getting down to the individual. But in order to support their structure, one of the 
theorist I was studying is Gramsci, hegemony, just studying power. They need to make, they want to maintain power and I think influence. And I think that's why Jesus tells us to be a Christian, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. But somehow they've got it in their head that they can use the government as an instrument to get whatever agenda that they have. They've made a, the New York Magazine said they've made a pact with the devil, but they, <laughs> but they use the governmental power mm-hmm. to get whatever agenda it is. And you can name the different agendas. And also I've been wondering on the non, I don't say non-Christian side, but just say certain people that the population demographics is changing Mm-hmm. And I think it's people that just want to hang on to their power. Again, I don't know those Southern Baptist presidents, but I've seen a flip-flop from 2016 by one of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think they are complicit in using fear and anger to stir up a base in order to advance their agenda. Now, of course, no one's going to say that. They're going to couch it. They always couch it in religious terms. Those CRT Marxists, they've used that throughout American history to dismiss people like we talked about before. And so I, it's a big power play. And I don't know how people of color would want to go to their schools or can stay in their schools if they're dismissing them. And saying that race, critical race theory is something Marxist or of the devil. And the intersectionality, I said this on a tweet. Come on, African-American women, you know, why is the death rates for maternal death rates for African-American women so high in the United States? That's intersectionality. Woman, African-American is different than whites. Why are the maternal death rates so high? They should be concerned with the maternal death rates of African-American women. women. That's intersectionality. Instead of decrying it, that's ridiculous. And you say that you care for life. Mm-hmm. So that actually brings me over to Dr. Anjumarie. I can see you nodding and leaning yeah. forward. So- I, w- I was going to lean forward because I wanted to agree with what Ms. Marlena is saying. And I think the other important piece of why it comes out now. So I'm I'm here from California, I in lot based in uh, Southern California, and One of the most prominent conservative pastors out here, John MacArthur, actually came out against CRT. Thank you for the eye roll. (laughs) (laughs) But came out against CRT and intersectionality a couple of years ago. And so I just wanted to lift up something that you said, Marlena, which is really about when people feel threatened, when people are actually worried about what that things could actually work, like that we really could have a different country. We really, not just in terms of how we look, but that we are really thinking. So for me, it's both disheartening, but it's also exciting at the same time, because it means that those of us who care about justice in the evangelical community, those of us who are saying and pushing back and saying, no, we are no longer just the radical right Republicans that all evangelicals are. We're having an effect. Because if you think something's not a threat, Like, you don't have to worry about it, right? Like, you can let an ant cross your path because that ant is no threat to you. It's only when that ant is threatening your food or your ant is threatening something that you're like, oh, no, we got to stomp on this. Wow. So I think that's the other thing to take away from this is that we're actually having some success. and, And we need to feel confident in that and know that we're on the right path as much as we have to push back against what they're doing. 
That's so good. That is so good. And it's encouraging because it means that as we come into this next America, and I, I've been calling it the next America, right? Like as we come into this, it's that it's not going to just happen poof. We actually have to, but but it's not like we also have to dream of a whole new way of doing stuff. We're on the path. We are making an impact. That next America is coming. And that's why Marxism got ripped out of the bag after what, 50 years of being, you know, held in the back corner of that bag. My goodness. Okay. Anybody else want to, want to share a thought? I, I, I did want to jump in. I think that there is something else. You mentioned the power, but there's another power in evangelicalism that <laughs> there's an arrogance that says if they didn't think of this thing or didn't see it mm. right away in the Bible, then it can't be right. Hence the whole argument over creation, for example, or what's happening in Genesis or, yes, or other right. ideas is that if they didn't think of it, then it's got to be of the devil. It didn't come. So you'll hear them say something like it's incompatible with the gospel, meaning that their theological system that they created, they didn't think of it. So if somebody thought of it and it didn't come explicitly Christian, then it's evil. That's why I'm grateful for what Dr. Ange Maria is saying is that there's Christians in thinking of these ideas before because evangelicals think that if, if it didn't come from them, then it can't be true. That is really fabulous. And I would also like to add, we've asked the question why CRT and I'm even adding why CRT now of all times with right. what's going on in our country to bring this up all the things that the Southern Baptist leaders could speak on and give a joint statement about that mm -hmm. of all times you're going to make this statement right now uh, and the president Dr. Yes. both of these things now I believe that's the question because it goes back to, to maintaining the power, being threatened of losing power, just being af afraid. But yet we are people who put our trust in another kingdom. At least that's what it's supposed to be like. Mm -hmm. We are people who are to model Jesus Christ, who divested himself of power in order to empower the powerless. But, mm -hmm. but when it comes time for us to do that, then all of a sudden we're trying to maintain our power. And, and so I don't get it how six men can get together and make a statement about race without consulting and including people of other races and genders. I, I don't get it. But to me, what they're doing only proves the need for CRT. So that's, that's right. the irony in it myself that, that I see it, that, that they're just proving what they are coming against to try to say that it doesn't exist and following President Trump's lead who wanted mm -hmm. to come and, and pull any kind of teachings and beliefs about institutional racism out of curriculums. So the, the, the mm -hmm. church, at least that segment of the church, has been following and been the tail for these past four years. And they've been in bed with the Republican Party to a fault. Yeah. And, and I wanted to say, too, Dr. Chris, this is Marlena. Why is it that it's always people of color whose theology is suspect? <laughs> like what they've been doing. What they've been doing, this white nationalism they've been preaching, that's a heresy. And all of us yeah. have said stuff about it. But if, if someone of color or white allies say something, oh, it's suspect. That's liberation theology. That's Marxist. That's black theology. And let me just say that this is not only limited to the theological realm. And that's part of the right. reason why this question of right now is why now is so unnecessary, especially right now. I mean, this. This podcast will come out on January 1st. This is January 1st. This is three days before the end of voting in the runoff election in Georgia. And the runoff election in Georgia 
is to decide the last two seats that need to be decided for the Senate. And if those seats go towards um, Democrats, then the power in the, the executive branch, the legislative branch, those two branches will then be in the hands of Democrats. And that means that the white nationalist agenda that has been pushed forward in three out of the three branches of government will come to a halt, a screeching halt on January 20th. So there is real power at stake, as in like hard power, as in state power is at stake. And it really struck me that the role that Al Mohler played in the statement, that his statement was the longest out of all of them, and it actually served as, as it actually served as the statement itself. And I think he organized it. And the day that I did my little tweet thread, he came out that same day telling Republicans in Georgia, they better vote. Otherwise, things are going to change. Like things are going to. So we know this is at the top of his mind that it's not just about CRT, it's about power. Drew, I'm interested to hear from you. How are you processing this as a theologian whose focus is on race, justice, and faith? Yeah, so on one hand, I mean, I won't lie, like, and there's a part of me that I could care less what the Southern Baptists think. Like, that's right, right. my first reaction. I won't lie. Like, it's not my sphere of influence. It's not my relational networks. I don't find, like, they don't have credibility on this subject. They have no proven if they had been like doing the work on the ground all this time, then I'd be like, all right, we can at least have a, a discussion on why this confusion is coming up. But my initial response is just, it doesn't matter. But I do think that it is perpetuating deeply problematic responses to our to white supremacy and anti-blackness and just our racialized society as a whole. And I think about the students that I get in the classroom and there's no question that, so we think about the idea that the idea of racialization and how that shapes identities and sense of belonging. I see that in the classroom. I see white students. We will, I teach, I mostly teach theology, but I teach first year seminar, which I teach a course called The Politics of Blackness. So I can teach anything I want to. So it's fun. So it's like black and sexual thought and history and all kinds of stuff. But we were reading, which text was it? It wasn't this year. It was the year before we were reading The Color of Law, Rothstein's mm -hmm. The Color of Law yeah. with students. And, and afterwards, it was interesting. So we had a conversation. We're talking just a little bit about reparations. They had seen the impact that had happened over time. It was obvious to them. Nobody would have debated it in the classroom. They had all the knowledge. And yet still the immediate response from my white male students, at least two of them, were, what will this mean for white people? Like that. And what struck me was just how powerful racial identity and formation and belonging had just caught them. Wow, um, so that yeah. in the life of the church, the very place where that ought to be transformed and liberated, our sense of identity in the world and how we move, who had to, especially if we're as followers of Jesus, how do we identify with the least lost and little ones of the world? It's the way we're being discipled, that that, there's, it's a complete failure. So the issues at stake here, I think, as it relates to the Southern Baptists and what's doing it, it's nothing new in some ways. They're just continuing this centuries-long mangling and diseasing and distorting and domesticating of Christian discipleship. And so that's really what's at stake, I think, for me when I enter into this conversation. That's awesome. And you really took us into my next question, which is how are the core arguments of CRT manifesting in our world and in the church today? I want to hear first from Dr. Anjumarie. How are you seeing critical race theory actually coming forward in our, how do we 
how do we see it tangibly at work? The theories, the, the logics of that field of study actually coming forward today. I think one of the main places where you see a lot of it, which is, again, another reason why people would push back against it, has to do with the Black Lives Matter movement over the past yeah. seven years. So certainly the murder of George Floyd, God rest his soul, is definitely on our minds in 2020. But this goes back to 2013. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Trayvon Martin, whether you're talking about Michael Brown, whether you're talking about any particular person. Mm-hmm. The idea that there is a system that is designed to destroy and does not value Black lives has taken over our country and indeed the world in many ways. What I think is really important about that and why it's so disheartening to me as someone who tries to follow Jesus on a daily basis to have pastors say that we should not talk about Black lives mattering. And I'm sitting there going, but we've talked about being pro-life for generations And so how can we be pro-life and not talk about Black lives mattering? How can we be pro-life and not say that a boy, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, deserved to live? Or the one that's been breaking my heart and I've been praying on for the past year since I found out about it, Elijah McClain. I don't know why he just touched my heart more than any of the others, because they all did. But how can we think about that and say that we're pro-life? How can we, you know, love God and love our neighbor if we are not concerned about Black people dying? I think one of the main places, and I think the reason for the pushback is, of course, what did you see? People saw a man murdered in nine minutes, and people said, this is wrong. And when people started to say that, that's when you got, oh, now we're banning critical race theory and intersectionality and diversity training. Oh, now it's Marxist. Now it's that. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who are Marxist who are leaders of Black Lives Matter. But what I'm saying is that the movement is bigger than just a single ideology. Yes. It is bigger than that. And that's what people are afraid of. That is so good. That is so really, so right on point. When we look at even just what happened in the last year, literally just take 2020. It feels like 2020 in many ways was a a year of revelation where we began to see the impacts of our legalization of race in America, like the legal structure and construct, the impacts of that political and legal construct we call race, the disparities of death in COVID, the disparities in policing, and what we, and also vigilante justice. Just injustice with Mod Arbery and 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 the whole river of hashtags that we had throughout 2020, and we also see it in immigration policy over the last four years and refugee policy, and really in many ways the Trump era in so many ways was was a manifestation. It was like literally like an object lesson, which is the most ironic thing in critical race theory. You could literally just study the Trump presidency and prove critical race theory. <laughs> and you can see it. He, he literally worked it. Like he, he did that. He, he instituted, he literally worked the levers of the law in order to protect white supremacy explicitly throughout his time, which is why it's also ironic that his supporters would then say, but you can't talk about it. You can't talk about critical race theory. We can't teach about that. <laughs> I'm saying amen. You said that. There's, a, there's another theologian who was saying that it gives Trump too much credit 
to actually think that he knows these things and understands critical race theory. But the people in his circle, many of them were educated in schools, you know, maybe even some elite schools where they were exposed to these ideas. And you probably had some white students along the way who said, I don't want to work in this. We, can, we need to find a way that other folks don't get this. I bet you the, that whole uh, patriotic education thing is coming from folks in his circle who were schooled by people in critical race theory, who, white guys who probably felt isolated or alienated or whatever, and said, no, they want to, try, they want to uh, stop those ideas in the pipeline. So I don't even give the president credit for understanding these things, but he worked it. Like you said, he worked the system. He did. And even when, when he instituted in the very first, like what, 100 days that he was 200 days, maybe it took a little longer for him to get his cabinet in place. But when he put in place his cabinet, we knew like his cabinet, because what is like hiring is policy, like HR, you're going to determine basically how your organization works by who you hire to do the job. When he put Stephen Miller in place as his advisor, that should have been the first red flag. Like that should have been the first, first indication to us. He has an agenda and the agenda is protecting white supremacy, period. Because that is Stephen Miller's ag explicit agenda. And then, of course, when he hired the uh, attorney general, Jeff Sessions, again, an acolyte of Strom Thurmond, a segregationist. These were indications. So I want to go back, Drew, to something that you said very quickly. You said that you had two students in one class who raised the question, when talking about reparation, we're talking about repairing what race broke in the world. They're, they raised their hand and they said, but what about white people? Can we dig into that for a minute? Because maybe we can dig on that, dig into that on the other side of our break. But I just want to raise the flag here that when you say, but what about white people? What you're saying is all of the suffering, all of the admitted oppression is not worth dealing with if white people are displaced from their current position in the hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you could say that's the, another thing that critical race theory has been exposing in our times because it's not just exposing the racial hierarchy, but naming white supremacy and whiteness in the way that it centers yeah. itself, the way it normalizes itself, the way it creates itself as a standard. And it's that very thing that they were practicing. There's, they were still saying, but we're more important. We acknowledge. It wasn't even like there is no harm, there's no loss, there's no disproportionate suffering. They weren't making that argument. They were saying, we acknowledge all these things and we're still first. And I'm still first and foremost worried about the people who have been over-advantaged more than how my community has intentionally, strategically targeted and harmed uh, black and brown people for centuries. It actually, it took me off because I wasn't expecting it. It was actually, I talked about it now because it was over a year ago, but it was a devastating moment when I saw my students engage that way because I expected more from them. And I was so deeply wounded that they didn't care and love black people enough to be asking questions around like, how can we make this right? That's that, like, where was the love for black people? So I think it exposes the white supremacy that's so deeply embedded. And in some ways you could argue that this whole conversation 
couldn't be happening outside of a framework of white supremacy where six white men think that they can get together and denounce and set the terms of conversation for everybody else and how people ought to act and how they, it's just ridiculous to think that they could norm themselves and center themselves at the heart of the conversation and think that everyone must align and fall in line with how their decrees from on top. That's the imagination that they're operating out of. So white supremacy is exposing their own place. And, and if it does do its work, they will have to find new ways of dialoguing with others, new ways of conversing, listening, hearing, receiving other people's stories as sacred and holy. They just can't operate in that same way anymore where they think they have a monopoly and a copyright on theology and a copyright on biblical interpretation, a copyright on Jesus. They have none of those things. And all of a sudden, critical race theory actually helps displace them from their own idolatry. And if I could jump in on that point as they write this statement saying that critical race theory should not be included in their seminaries and things like that. And they want to go back to the centrality of the Bible. And as you mentioned, Brother Hart, as we interpret the Bible, they will go against our understanding and interpretation of the Bible when we call out systemic oppression that's found in the Bible. They will then say that our interpretation is wrong. And, and that's what I've always said to these folks. I believe in the authority of the Bible. I don't always agree with your interpretation and application of it. The scriptures are inspired, but not your interpretation and application of it. But since whiteness has been centered for so long in this country, they think from white supremacy that they are divine in their understanding of the things of God and that we don't have anything to contribute to the conversation. But I've always believed that the faith of the slave has always been greater than the religion of the slave master because of what we had to learn by experience. There was just something we gained about knowing God from being oppressed, which is why I guess the last or first, which is why I guess there is an advantage according to the scriptures that the poor have over the rich because we must trust in God whereas they have their wealth to trust in, and which is why they want to uh, do everything they can to maintain it, as opposed to giving it away. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. I did have a question both for you and for the other folks who are far more theological scholars than I am. I think that the idolatry piece, and then I also think about something that Pastor Dennis said a little bit earlier about the arrogance and I, I, the authority that Dr. Drew was talking about that they're trying to pull on. And I guess I just, because maybe I'm in these circles and I have to debate back and forth and people are coming at me with all kinds of stuff. Like, where do we find the authority in the word 
to actually say, look, <laughs> you're creating an idolatry out of white supremacy. You're like, that's an idol. You're being too arrogant with your interpretation. And so I just, if that's okay, I just wanted to hear more from any of the folks who are far more well-schooled and versed in it than I ever would be. Yeah, well, I'm going to jump in on this one because this is touching in my area of expertise here in, in New Testament studies. I, I, I did write this book. I'm not just trying to plug the book, but I wrote the book, Might from the Margins, for that very reason, because there's this assumption that there's no power where we are to interpret scripture or to exemplify the way of Christ. But it's taken people of color to read the Bible. And I say people of color because it's not just African-Americans, but to read the Bible from their place. And scholars have a name. They call it social location from their place and to help shed light on what passages of scripture mean. It took black scholars, for example, to give voice to Onesimus in the book of Philemon, who's voiceless in the book. But to help us look at what's happening in that book in a way that, that doesn't just have him as this slave that needs to be pitied, but to see him as Paul would see him as a brother who, who Paul considers valuable in ministry. It took black scholars to help not see that book just used for the Fugitive Slave Act to say, you know, masters have a right to bring their slaves back, but to say there's something empowering in this person. So our eyes on the text are valid. So basically I'm saying there are, we need to start paying more attention to scholars who don't come from that same white frame. And there's a growing number right now. That's exactly right. Marlena. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I think about Ephesians chapter six, spiritual wickedness in high places. Yes. You know, what, and what in Matthew 13, the love of money will choke out the gospel in you. I'm mm -hmm. like, you love money and power and influence so much. Like, I would love to hear Al Mohler tell me why he mm -hmm. flipped on Trump to become anti-Trump. And then to just just fall in love with him because he's trying to become president of the, I don't even know, the Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm like, mm -hmm. why did you flip? Money, power, and influence, I think, is the counterfeit trinity. And mm -hmm. when it's talking about spiritual wickedness in high places, yes, it's talking about spiritual demonic things. And it's also talking about, I think, this. Dr. Dennis, correct me, you know, that, but like the, I'm not the New Testament scholar, but isn't it also talking about governments and things like that? I, I believe so. so. Mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they're like, well, they speak about being pro-life as I, Dr. Angie Marie kind of hinted at and judges, but they don't say anything else about how you treat other people and the kind of murder that they are complicit with when it comes to immigration, when it comes to other things. I'm like, Jesus, the gospel appealed to who first? You can find this. Slaves and women and, and the lower class in the first century. It spread like wildfire through them. Come on now. And Jesus said, I come to proclaim the good news. But they're not proclaiming good news. They're becoming instruments of oppression to the most vulnerable in society. And then they have the gall to tell me that I'm a Marxist and I don't know scripture. I'll go to toe, toe with you in scripture. Let's have a Bible quiz, man. Right. Let's go. And I, don't, I do not. And I want to say to whoever's listening, just do not fall into that trap of thinking that people of color trust Jesus in us. Jesus didn't just appear to white people and doesn't only speak to white people. In fact, like, come Jesus on. didn't appear to white people. That's right. But That's you know right. what I'm saying? He didn't. Right, Jesus but they appeared act like it. an indigenous, Amen. his own Amen. people, 
Right. And, and there's only one, maybe two white people who had the grace to hear his voice. And that yeah. was Pilate and the Centurion. Yeah. That's it. Ah, and they yeah. had Pilate himself. Pilate killed the brother. But yeah. yeah, people act like Jesus only appears to white people. I'm like, Jesus only speaks to white people. Come on. Which is why they had to lighten up all the characters in scripture. They to divorce Egypt from the continent of Africa. That's yeah. right. Because mm -hmm. Egypt can't be in Africa because Africans are devoid of common sense and all of those things that, that makes them lesser beings. But God foresaw that ignorance and he purposefully sent his son into Africa and allowed him to stay there and said, out of Africa, Egypt, I've called my son. And again, if we let the Bible just speak for itself, then that means that Jesus was in Africa before the colonizer got there. That, as my sister mentioned earlier, the Coptic church through the Ethiopian eunuch, the gospel had hit Africa long before the Europeans got there in an attempt to evangelize the slaves. So again, if we let the Bible just speak for itself, then we might not have to be talking about whether or not critical race theory is uh, necessary today. There's also the reality that when you stretch back to all of the scripture, like you go back past the New Testament, you go back to the, you go back to Genesis, my place, that's where I live, where I've been, where I've been for about 20 years now. When you go back to Genesis, you have to contend with the reality that that, that book was written at least Genesis 1, if not Genesis 1 and 11 and many other places in, the, in, in that scripture were written in the context of oppression by empire. And it was, and by brown people. And when they said, let all humanity be made in the image of God, that in itself was a revolutionary act. Never before in the history of, of civilization had the image of God been placed inside all people. Up to that point in every major empire, the image of God was only placed inside the king or the queen. So that was a democratization of power on the first page of the Bible. And it also included woman and man. So both men and women were made in the image of God. So the whole question of intersectionality is actually seen and addressed on the first page of the whole Bible. On the whole Amen. Bible. Amen. So when, you, when they say this is not biblical, um, this is Marxist, take them to the first page. The yeah. first page, because if See, somebody we're is trying not to shout right God, now, yeah, somebody is made in the image of God, then that means, according to that first page, they are created to exercise dominion in the world. Amen. And that's the key piece. Yeah, that for me is the key piece. They are created because it's said in the same breath, no pause, no, no, no comma, no, no period. Same breath, same thought. They are created to make decisions that impact the world. So when you look at our system, when you look at the Southern Baptist Convention and the reason why it exists, that they thought it was okay for them to, not only okay, but it's, it's clear, it is God. worth breaking with Divine the rest right. of our church so that we can continue to own slaves and still be missionaries. Right. And then the PCA church, I'm calling folk out, the, the Presbyterian Church in America, that it is okay for us to, to fight to defend segregation. You are, with those policies, those church policies, you are going to war 
with God, with the image wow. of God on earth. Amen. Because God created every single image to flourish and to be able to exercise dominion. Ooh, amen. Wow. And you know how Exodus, but y'all got me going. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And how in Exodus it talks about the sins to the third and fourth generation. I think yeah. their sin is still embedded in them. Yeah. And as Pastor Chris said in the earlier segment, this is why we're doing critical race theory, because to make that statement, mm. to mm. say we don't want this taught and we don't want intersectionality taught. And if you're saying you don't want it taught, you're equating it with evil, with corruption. And obviously, as uh, Dr. Anjumarie said earlier, there's a whole wide belief in this area. People come from different uh, streams and views, but that's with anything. And so your sin of racism, as Dr. Drew, we talked about, is embedded in our systems in this country since the founding. It's that just re you, you are in, and Dr. Edwards said that it's like a case study in exactly what we're talking about. Like yeah. you to make this pronouncement, my hope is that they would repent. I think there's some political, I heard one of a seminary professor at Midwestern goes around, someone told me, preaching against critical race theory goes from church to church raising this i think you need to repent i think you need to repent i think those six presidents need to repent and to ask not only for the lord to forgive them but for brothers and sisters to forgive them and say hey i, I we were wrong and also i want to say too that this is marlena by the way that they white supremacy this obviously functions through regimes of exclusion. This is another regime of exclusion. Who's excluded and why, you have to ask yourself. Like Dr. Chris said, why weren't people of color in that room? Maybe they consulted some people, but if I was a person of color working at one of their seminaries, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> like, I have, and there's a power differential. And if I do say something, then I'm my theology is questioned. My faith is questioned. My politics is questioned. But I agree with you, Lisa. I think a lot more of this is about politics and power, not theology. Theology is just the cover. Can I ask, what do you guys think is the impact of this on the witness of the church at oh, large? Oh, my. Yeah, I'm, I'll jump on that one, too. Yeah. I think it's I, I think these last several years have put a big spotlight on the church, of course, the way evangelicals to a large degree, at least some segment, have been supportive of this Trump regime. I think it's hurt us. I say us now because I think take Christianity now, all of us. I think it's hurt us in that we've already been losing some folks. We've often been losing young folks who think that the church doesn't think critically about things anyway. And now it's just going to serve to lose more people who, who will think maybe that there's no place for them because the church is showing them that there's no place for them. So I think on the one hand, it's going to hurt the witness. What I'm hoping, though, is on the other side of it is that while in some ways I don't want to center the Southern Baptists in all of this. I don't want right, to. Right. They're the biggest denomination, Protestant denomination. But my point is, I think more I'm hoping that more Christians of color will rise up and, and join in solidarity so that there can be a counter witness in many ways so that we can see, we can get some of those folks to come back. But it's hurting our witness. I'll just say it that way. It's hurting the witness of Christians. That's really good. I would definitely just piggyback that. I think it's a devastating vandalizing of the name of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. and I was just having a conversation yesterday about, it was a conversation about, is Christianity the white man's religion? That age old mm -hmm. question that comes up over yeah. and over again in the black community. Precisely because it has been weaponized in such ways to be 
used, right? It's the theology has been manipulated, the biblical interpretations have been manipulated to justify and bolster white supremacy and anti-Black violence and oppression against Black people. And it's a legitimate question for people to be asking, is it? Yeah. Is this for yeah. us? Is this actually going to be life-giving? Is this going to help us uh, pursue a new world? Mm -hmm. Now, historically, of course, there's no question that it has been for so many folks. It has been that source that has drove them to struggle and to resist and to even dream dangerous dreams of another world. But that question is just a devastating question. And there is enormous decline happening right now um, <laughs> across the board in the United States. Globally, <laughs> that's not the problem. But in the United States, it's a devastating decline. Um, and it's directly, it is, it's global it is, is it global too? Oh, it is I didn't global know that. Because I, I, I experience, what I hear is I hear about the evangelical church in Brazil, the mm -hmm. evangelical church in South Africa, the evangelical church in Australia is all, they've been planted mostly by the Southern Baptists. Mm. Hello? I wow. am not kidding you. Wow. And, and so the, the impact of the, and then also the silence mm. of other churches that are global, like Hillsong and Vineyard right. and others, they're silent on this. So, so silence is complicity, y'all. Absolutely. And yeah. when the largest, when the, when the biggest bullhorn gets the, gets the stage, and that's the Southern Baptist, that's what Christianity is believed to be in places where they are the ones planting the churches. Hmm. Yeah, can um, I just, I was just going to say briefly that that's actually been one of the reasons why, like if you follow me on Instagram or something, I actually have become more explicit about my faith Yeah, um, and told yeah. people like upfront, this is who I am because I think for me, it's changed my witness in the opposite direction. Whereas some people might be ashamed of being a Christian, I think it's so important for me when I'm with my students or anybody else for them to know that, no, we exist. That Southern Baptist is not the only way to be. That uh, person over there who's anti-everything you exist to be, or that God created you to be, that's not the only way to be a person of faith. And so at least for me, it's made me more out about my faith and more out about making sure that I'm in these kinds of spaces. I would never 10 years ago have been in a space like this, even though I was a believer back then. And so I just, that wanted to say that it's made me more explicit. That's really great. And I also need to just, I need to make a caveat because I know some of the folks at the top of Hillsong and I know that they are even right now inside their church are in the midst of, of a struggle to push forward on racial justice. And, but it's a struggle y'all, it's a struggle because silence is the norm and silence. And you know what silence does, silence entrenches the status quo. And the status quo, even what we were just saying earlier, benefits folk of European descent. That's, and so who's gonna, the question is always, but what about white people? But what about white people? So, okay, here's my next question. As we organize to set the record straight, what do you think should be core tenets of any attempt that we make to move the people and the groups that have bought the lies, like they've eaten them for lunch and said, mm, this tastes good. Because look, unless we go to war, that's an alternative. We could go to war and we could win by domination, which is how we've done it in the past. But a good 40%, 30 to 40% of the whole nation is now Trumpized, like they actually believe the lies. And you have denominations which, like, like the SBC who are the largest Protestant denomination in the whole country who is further, further weaponizing this question of race in the division of our nation. 
So we could go to war, but if we don't go to war, that means we have to win people. How do we win them? What do you think needs to be core tenets of any uh, strategy or, or approach to winning those who have bought the lies? I would say that we, we expect a remnant and not the whole or the majority. Because when there were issues in Israel of people hearing God, God told Isaiah, I want you to go talk to people that they're going to hear you, but they're not going to hear you. They're going to see some stuff but they're not going to understand what they're seeing because their hearts are hard. And Isaiah was like, now, how long I got to keep preaching to people that don't want to hear and see? And the Lord said, until a remnant manifests. And when we think about the parable of the the seed and the soil, only one of the four produce fruit. So I think we have to move with the movers. We have to move with the Nicodemuses who come and talk to us at night because they don't want to talk to us in front of their friends. Um, We just got to work with the people who the Holy Spirit has touched their heart. But I would just say that the majority of them, they're still induced by doctrines of demons. And as Marlena said, generational curses. But we have to believe that there will be a remnant that will come out and be allies. But above all, followers, true followers of Jesus Christ. And we can't get arrogant in the fact that we see. It ought to humble us and break us. And and if we walk with God, we ought to be humble. So back to that earlier point about the pride, Micah, how can we walk with God and not do so in a humble posture? And so our heart breaks for them, but we also shake the dust off and we keep moving and doing the things that God has called us to do. And he will draw the people to himself and even within the true body of Christ. I also think in terms of we've got to find new practices for actually forming people. And I think so one of the things that some of you guys know, like me and Jared for Inverse Podcast, we have our communities and we have these dialogue, big book studies, and it's like global people all over. But one of the things we do, we put practices in place that we believe are formative. And so we take Jesus at very seriously. The first are last and the last are first. How do we put this into practice? Yeah. And so we actually shape our conversation with the, those kind of things in place. And so we say, look, white men, you're going to get the gift of listening. You're going to be the first listeners, right? Women of color, you're going to be leading and entering into the conversation and everyone's going to follow you to allow you to lead in the space. And by uh, creating a space where some people are actually invited to step back, others are invited to step forward based on the, the norms of what would normally happen if we hadn't done that, it actually shifts people's ways of engaging in spaces. And what has happened is we've seen over and over again is that most of the white men who initially were upset or like, you know, quietly, right? They didn't say anything, but quietly uncomfortable were all of a sudden saying, oh, this has been a gift. Now I look forward to each week coming and hearing what these women of color are going to say and how they're going to lead us in conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't happen immediately, but after week two, three, four, all of a sudden, um, their expectations are realizing they're being enriched. And so, I mean, that's just one example, but I do think we need new practices uh, because if it doesn't get enfleshed, it won't, it won't form us. We actually need practices that form us to be different kind of people in the world. So good. That's so good. Let me ask you this. What do you think it will take you know, Marlena, you, you said people need to repent. Those six seminary presidents need to repent. What do you think it's going to take for them to repent? I think maybe proximity to people. It would be nice if they listen to this podcast because there's no animus here. Honestly, I'm upset with you if you're hearing this. And I want you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith and not in the politics. But 
I, yeah, I'd like them to be proximate, to listen to other people. I'd love to have conversations together. Like, I'm not against you. I'm for you. I'm for Christ and the church. And I want to trust that you're for me. But mm -hmm. I think you're wrong. Like, Paul had to say to Peter now, hold up now. That's right. You're, you know, and, and just because I'm a woman coming from poverty, are you saying I can't say something to you? No, of course I can't because I have the faith too. And so I'd like them to repent. And one other thing I wanted to add, and, and maybe listeners or other people, we need to have some institutions where we can speak these things, right? Because they have institutions, they have seminaries. I'm not saying money and power is the solution, but if we could have places where we can congregate to put these things forth. Mm -hmm. That would be helpful. There's churches. Some of you are pastors and have churches and are in schools, but I think having some institutions to say, just to say, Hey, this is not the only thing like Dr. Ange Marie said, this is not the only thing out there. These aren't the only kinds of Christians. And so that's something that I would like to see. I don't know what that exactly would look like, mm -hmm. but I'd like to see that repentance. And then repentance is just not saying i'm sorry so you start putting people of color in positions of power in distribution positions yes they should be some of those presidents <laughs> and, but not the mm -hmm. bow to your will that they do really have freedom of choice to do what they want without fear that they're going to get fired yeah, because you could put a black face in there yes yeah. yeah and they're very good at that actually <laughs> they're very good at that i, I want to end on a note of vision and hope and so I want to ask you a question that I actually didn't share with you ahead of time. I want to ask if you were to envision the healed church in a healed America, what would it look like? It would look like the church at Antioch where you had different ethnicities in true positions of leadership and power. Mm -hmm. It would be Acts 6 ministering to all the widows and not just the Hebraic widows. It would be a missions-minded church. It would be a church that has a global heart, but also a local presence that, that comes against injustice and, and, and preaches the gospel, not only in word, but also in deed, mm -hmm. earning the right to be heard. And a church that people would say, Man, they're, they're shaking up our community. They're, turn, they're turning this place upside down. And they influence politics, but they're not in bed with po politicians. They speak truth to power. And uh, I see people who look like me in leadership. A healed church? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I, say, I, I say amen. I, I'm going to say amen. I'm going to press on. I'm going to press on from Antioch, too. No, no shade on Antioch, but all the leaders named are men. I think if we oh. if we press on to the end, I think if we press on to the end of Romans, we would see yeah. Paul shouting out. We would see Paul shouting out women who have these very influential positions. One called an apostle, yeah. one who's a one who's a deacon, Phoebe, who's who's probably the one that's bringing the letter and reading it to everybody. Mm -hmm. So I would see, I would see less centrality to leadership, more a uh, decentralized leadership. We have put too much in this one person at the top telling everybody else what to do. Right. I honestly don't think that's the way the early church operated. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so I would see that as part of the healing and wholeness. I would also see us with eyes, as, uh, as Pastor Chris and Dr. Chris is talking about, eyes on our context and not just on ourselves. There would be a sense of the church mm -hmm. exists for the healing of the nations, as it were, to be broader than that. Yeah, that's some beautiful mm, pictures. Thank you. 
Yeah, for me, I guess uh, I, immediately I was thinking also flattening of hierarchies um, within the life of the church is the starting point. So you guys have already said that well. But then going on, I do think that, and maybe this is some of my emphasis, just what it means to, be, to bear witness in the world is to pursue and to bear witness to God's reign, what God's dream for us, and to struggle for that in our communities, struggle so that our neighborhoods and neighbors all flourish to have a vision for God's dream for our communities and to actually seek that out with a policy change, structural change, but also grassroots, all of it change, actually embodying and bearing witness to God's dreams so that we first bear witness to that in our own lives. We should, it should be a miracle before the eyes of our neighbors, the way that we share our resources, the way that we live, the way that the narratives of exceptionalism, all that stuff don't bear witness and flesh out in our lives. Yeah. And then that should be what, how we become attentive to Jesus in the presence of Jesus should shape how we are attentive to the dis- disproportionate suffering that goes on in our neighborhoods and in our communities broadly. And, and there should be repair, right? There should be healing. And the church, first and foremost, uh, because let, if we have dealt and t- spoke truthfully about the harm that has gone on, then there's great repair that the church directly ought to be engaging in, not just because we want to do good, but because we actually did the harm to begin with. Mm-hmm. Marlena and then Dr. Anjmarie. Yeah, I want to um, affirm what was said before. And I think when people encounter us, they see, you know, I see the face of Christ because I, even in my program and other places, I'm around a lot of non-Christians and even they know what Jesus should be like. Like whatever they've heard about Jesus, the little that they know about scripture, the Bible or Jesus, they know that what they're seeing on the national scene is not Jesus. And I want people when they encounter us to see the face of Christ, because right, Jesus, I always say, why are we harming the people that Jesus made a beeline to? Why are we hurting the very people that Jesus spent time with? The last shall be first. And how we treat the least of these in our society, I don't remember who said it, says a lot about us. And Dr. Edwards wrote a book about that. That's what I would like to see, because if we don't, if we earn the right to be heard and we are witnesses, people will want to hear what we have to say. Yeah. Right now, they don't want to hear what we have to say because we're not living like Jesus as a collective. Obviously, there are people that are. Thank you. Dr. Anjumarie, you get the last word. Oh, what's, what's pressure? But the good news is everybody has said things so eloquently before me. I would only add to the wonderful things that have already been said in terms of a healed America, that we confront our history. Because until we confront our history, and this is true in how we come to faith, right? Until you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you cannot get there on your own, you will never have the relationship with Jesus that you need to have, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think collectively we need to confront the history and confront the history holistically, know all of the bad things, but also know that there have been people of faith throughout our history who have held it down for us. And the only way that any of us is on this podcast today is because they came before and prayed for us and got us where we needed to be. So I think that's the other piece is to know that as we do that, that's the source of our power, not the politics, as others have already said. We didn't elect Barack Obama Jesus, and we certainly didn't elect Donald Trump Jesus. And so we need to know the difference between the two, and we only know that through our history. The doctors were in the house today. These are the conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This 
is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in several other places all over the country. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. So stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. We just send out one thing a week so you can figure out where you're at and how you're interacting on the road. So we invite you to listen again next month New episodes drop around the first week of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.